0: Hello and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson bringing to you this week news from Ukraine, Myanmar, Europe, like sort of in general, the United States, and a see you in hell that's the celebration of a dead fascist from Argentina. going to start out this week with Ukraine. Now the ongoing war in Ukraine is, of course the result of the military aggression of the dictatorship of Vladimir Putin in Russia. However, in Ukraine, there have been increasing troubling reports of Ukrainian soldiers and especially Ukrainian sort of like paramilitary volunteers who are sporting Nazi symbols on their uniforms. Specifically, many of them have been seen wearing the death's head symbol. That is the one that you know, is a skull and crossbones that the SS officers wore when they were running the concentration camps in the Nazi system. Now, the fact is that the Ukrainian military seems to be trying to brush this under the rug, which is not good at all. A lot of the members of these groups, some of them were actually members of right-wing paramilitary organizations that were operative in Ukraine, both prior to the Russian invasion and also during Russia's invasion of the Crimea earlier in the 2000s. This means that some of the people who are fighting against Russia are, in fact, arguably fascists, or at least deeply connected with fascist sentimentality. This is potentially related to the anti-communism of these right-wing organizations that has then translated into an anti-Russia sentiment presenting the current Russian invasion as just another example of the same kind of Russian occupation of Ukraine that the Soviet system committed in the 1920s through to the early 1990s. Moving on to Myanmar and or Burma, frankly, this is just me reminding you that Burma, or Myanmar, as it is variously called by various countries, is currently run by a military junta that took power in February of 2021. The junta continues to engage in human rights violations against villagers and rebels who are fighting against that military government. Moving on to Europe, I want to highlight an increasing level of connection between sort of mainstream conservative organizations and political operatives in Europe and the more, well, anti-democratic wing of the right wing in Europe. Specifically, a news story has surfaced in the United Kingdom showing three Tory, that is, Conservative Party members of the British Parliament, engaging in just like hanging out and connecting with the leaders of the European far right on a political level. These photos of them palling around with people include people like Viktor Orban, also the leader of the Swedish Democrats, which is a right wing Party from Sweden, and also the leaders of the Vox Party, which is a Spanish nationalist political party that is actually at the nexus of a lot of right-wing political organizing, not just in Europe, but also in the Americas as a whole. These photos were taken at an event that was a, you know, sort of meeting of the European Conservatives Group of the Council for Europe. Council for Europe was a post-war, that is post-World War II, attempt at a pan-European government. It precedes the European Union and is is like sort of less powerful than they are. It's sort of more like the United Nations in that while the European Union can like pass laws and force governments to do stuff, the Council for Europe cannot do that. Moving on to the United States, there have been several updates in the Republican primary system in the United States. Specifically, a bunch of other people are running for the Republican primary trying to seek the Republican nomination to be the president of the United States. There have been a couple people who have joined since the last time that I spoke to you in my, you know, sort of normal weekly update mode. The two most important people who have joined the GOP primary recently are Chris Christie, a former governor of New Jersey, and somebody who helped Donald Trump get the victory in 2016 after he failed to secure the Republican nomination in 2016. And, of course, Mike Pence, former vice president under Donald Trump, has also joined in this race. Christie and Pence are operating in the ways that they normally have. You know, neither of them has really changed their political persona that much as they are seeking these offices. Mike Pence is operating in his persona as a, like, creepy Ned Flanders type. Like, Ned Flanders is a good person. Mike Pence is absolutely not. Chris Christie is, as always, leaning hard into his, like, you know, I'm from New Jersey kind of swagger. He's insulting, he's crass. He tries to get people to listen to him by directly insulting Donald Trump. Christie in particular is really organizing his campaign around opposing Donald Trump's candidacy, saying that Donald Trump is a crook, saying that his children, Ivanka, and his other children are also crooks, that they're specifically in the the pockets of the Saudis, like the Saudi government. Now, neither of these guys is likely to defeat Donald Trump. Donald Trump is almost certainly going to be the Republican nominee for the presidency in 2024, unless, like, something really, really crazy happens. That's probably what's going to happen. It remains to be seen whether their entering the race will hurt or help Trump. In some cases, it seems like a crowded field, like having a bunch of candidates, might really help Trump. Because he does well on a crowded stage, he can really stand out. And everybody's going to be looking at him anyway. Conversely, if one of them really takes a hard fall and dedicates their entire media presence to taking down Donald Trump, it's possible that it might work. You know, it might actually help them out in some way. And that might be what Christie is doing. Moving on to a sort of lighter news story, as light as discussions about former President Donald Trump can be, Jay Johnston a former actor, especially voice actor, who is famous for his roles in Mr. Show, in Arrested Development, and possibly most famous as a voice actor in Bob's Burgers, has been arrested for his participation in the January 6th attempted coup. Johnston was one of the celebrities who was present on January 6th and had already been removed and essentially barred and banned from all of these shows already. His arrest is just a weird little note in the January 6th Chronicle. Finally, moving on to other potential legal cases regarding Donald Trump and his, you know, failed presidency, Trump has signaled that it is very likely that he will be seeing charges for the Mar-a-Lago case. Specifically, this relates to his handling, and by handling, I mean stealing, of classified documents from the White House and from other sources during his presidency, and his taking them to his private residence in Mar-a-Lago, where they were found by federal law enforcement officers, which is a federal crime. Like, it is a federal crime to mishandle classified documents in this way. Some of these classified documents related to the personal lives of leading foreign officials, like, like the presidents of foreign countries. Some of them related to national security details about the United States. Donald Trump has claimed that he had these documents because of, well, because he said that, like, well, I'm the president and the president determines what's classified, so I could just declassify them just by taking them out. This is not going to hold up in court. Donald Trump has said that he's going to be, you know, charged for this, and it is very likely that he is going to be, not just because of what he's saying, but also because of what's happening with prosecutors. His lawyers met with federal prosecutors on Monday basically in a last-ditch effort to try to avoid these charges. That is how these cases generally go. A grand jury which would decide to make these charges against Trump is meeting this week, probably to press these charges and to start a process of him actually going to trial for his failure to properly deal with these classified documents. Finally, moving on to Florida, a federal judge in Florida is likely to block Ron DeSantis' bill against gender-affirming care for minors. Governor DeSantis had signed a series of bills in mid-May that banned gender-affirming care for minors in Florida, specifically banning puberty blockers and any other types of treatment for people who have gender dysphoria or for people who are trans or for people who, who have a gender identity that does not conform with the one that they were assigned at birth. Other bills that DeSantis signed essentially at the same time also ban minors from attending drag shows. They limit how students can learn about non-heteronormative sexualities. These laws essentially made it a criminal offense for doctors and other healthcare providers to provide gender-affirming care. It became a misdemeanor under Florida law. Now, that's what happened in mid-May, and the right wing was really excited about this. They thought that this was a, you know, a big salvo in their war against trans people existing, essentially. On June 6th, a federal judge in Florida has said on the record that those who are suing to have these bills overturned are, quote, likely to succeed. Now, there are a lot of people in Florida and a lot of people in the United States, of course, who are arguing that these laws are unconstitutional. And this is a federal judge who is currently hearing complaints about these things, saying that it's probable that these laws are going to be overturned. If that happens, that might mean that these could go to the Supreme Court, which unfortunately is controlled by a conservative supermajority at this moment, so it is unlikely that there would be a very good result there. However, this is indicative that DeSantis will not be able to deny this really life-saving care from young people in Florida, at least temporarily. This is part of an ongoing and really overwhelming escalation of a fight over trans and other gender non-conforming people's right to exist and to express themselves and to be themselves in the United States today. Finally, I'm going to close out this week, like I do every week, with See You in Hell, a segment celebrating the deaths of prominent right-wing figures in history. This week, I'm moving to Argentina, and we are talking about a man named Juan Carlos Onganilla Caballo who is generally just known as Onganilla. Onganilla was born in Buenos Aires, the capital of Argentina, in 1914 to a relatively well-off family. He entered the Argentine Military Academy in 1931 and left as a cavalry officer in 1934. He married in 1937. He had some children. He ended up with a military career that was pretty long, but without major, major powerful prospects. He was essentially just a standard career guy. This changed a lot, however, in 1959, when a period of tumult in Argentina really began. In 1959, Argentina was still reeling with the end of the Peronist government in 1955 and attempting to re-establish civilian rule. Ongania was able to negotiate these changes and got himself a pretty good position in the Argentine military. Ultimately, in 1962, the Argentine military was divided between Peronists and anti-Peronists, the so-called Azules and Colorados. Onganilla was a leader of the Azul, or sort of Peronism without Perón faction. This ended up being successful, and it ultimately landed him the leadership of the Argentine military. He was commander-in-chief of the army in 1962 in the new civilian government. However, he and his fellow military officers were really unsatisfied with the direction that this new civilian government was taking Argentina. This led to them to stage a revolution of their own, a coup. Uh, I call it a revolution because that's what they called it. In 1966, they led the so-called Revolución Argentina, the Argentine Revolution, one of the country's most openly transformative military governments in its entire history. The goal of the Revolución Argentina was to create a stable, and permanent right-wing military government, much like the still existing at the time government of Francisco Franco in Spain. This is different from the supposed goals of most other military governments that are like intentionally temporary, or at least, you know, they say that they're temporary. They say that their goal isn't to establish a permanent military government, but in reality, that's mostly what they're doing. This new dictatorship suspended political parties, it ended the right to strike, It moved in some corporatist directions, you know, that is, trying to supposedly incorporate the desires of civil society as opposed to political parties. In reality, though, this was a pretty standard military government with some somewhat interesting stabs in the direction of the sort of post-fascist Franco-type governments. His government also engaged in the so-called Night of the Long Batons, which was a crackdown on leftists and academics in the university world, which in Argentina was previously entirely politically autonomous, as in, you know, the government could not touch the university sector. This led to an exodus of Argentine academics to the United States and Europe, which lasted through to the 2000s. The Revolución Argentina began to show cracks in the late 60s, so a couple years into its existence, In 1968 and 1969, a series of student and worker revolts, known as the Cordobaso, a revolution of students and workers in the Argentine city of Córdoba, led to the other members of the military government distrusting Onganilla's ability to suppress dissent and maintain control of the government. He was forced out in disgrace by a military counter-coup, and the military government lasted until the early 1970s. Onganilla retired to an estate in the Buenos Aires province and essentially stayed out of politics after that, although he did briefly run for president in 1995 against Carlos Menem, uh, but he withdrew because of health complications. And, and, you know, those health complications actually were his end. He died this day in history, June 8th of a stroke, 1995. So, Onganilla, we will see you in hell. Alright, that was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Please leave a review on whatever it is you're listening to this on. Check out my Patreon at patreon.com 15 minutes of fascism. That's 15 minutes of fascism spelled out and all one word. That's also where you can reach me on Gmail, 15 minutes of fascism at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter at hist of the right, that's H I S T of the right, and fascism15. All right, thanks very much, and I'll talk to you next week.